Welcome to What's Working in Washington. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Today, generations handling wealth in very different ways. But we approach it with five questions, pretty straightforward. And I think all of us can ask ourselves these questions either way. I've often seen in my life with entrepreneurs that money doesn't come with an instruction manual. It's the lack of this instruction manual that causes many sudden millionaires to go bankrupt and why many families find a moment of success is also a moment of distress. I've seen success challenge many people and take them by surprise. And since many of our listeners aspire to succeed in their businesses or careers, I thought I'd bring an expert onto our show to talk about some of these issues. Will Finnerty is a private wealth manager at UBS Private Wealth, and he's been working with entrepreneurs and their families for the last 25 years. He has had a ringside seat in our region's entrepreneurial growth and has some lessons to share with us today about those that aspire to one day hit it big and kick back and relax. Will, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. John. Well, Thanks. how did you get into this line of work? Doesn't seem uh, very entrepreneurial to be managing wealth. Yeah, so uh, I'm a native Washingtonian. Go Nats. Uh, I went to Georgetown to study finance in the early 90s. And my senior year, I took a class called entrepreneurship. It was from the guy that uh, invented the mini bar. His name is Walter Benson, probably my first mentor other than my dad. He's the one that really sort of shook me up as a, as a young man and, and directed me towards something that was more entrepreneurial in nature. And wealth management is an extension of that. So I focused on finance. That led me to that industry. And it sort of went on from there. And I've actually sat in your class. You've paid it forward. And you're, you taught entrepreneurship at Georgetown for many years. So you've, you've walked that walk. As you've gone along working with entrepreneurs, what's the aspect of the, your career choice that surprised you the most? Yeah, so um, as an undergrad, and I think this happens quite a bit in business schools, a lot of young people are directed towards investment banking or consulting, which are great industries. Wealth management tends to be something that's brought in later in life, and that's a shame, especially for women. And this is an excellent uh, industry for, for them as well. But wealth management, I think, largely because you want a little gray hair if you're going to turn your life savings over to somebody. And when I was you know, 22, when I started, I looked like I was 15. So you know, the, the, the chances of actually developing a practice at that point are pretty rare. But I'm surprised that more people, more young people especially, aren't interested in this as an industry. And um, I hope maybe uh, some that listen to this take it into account. What is it about it that you found most satisfying? Well, I, uh, this sounds corny, but um, service to people. I love working with people. Um, obviously, I have a strong interest in finance and entrepreneurship. And this is an industry where you can combine all three at the end of the day, the largest wealth earners are entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so being an industry where we can serve them sort of brings all that together. Well, because you've been doing this for a while, what do you see here in D.C.? You've seen a lot of entrepreneurs now. Are there some uh, examples of how you've seen entrepreneurship change in our region over the last 25 years? Well, yeah, I guess you started Amplifier Ventures in 2004, um, around the same time I started teaching the class. Um, our firm has done a great deal of research around this. We have a flagship uh, quarterly publication called Investor Watch. And this is one we put out last year, but really interesting insight into entrepreneurs and how the whole concept of starting your own business has evolved uh, over the years. Uh, we found that uh, about 60% of wealthy investors would consider starting a business. Now, that's way, way up from where it used to be. Uh, it used to be being a doctor or a lawyer was the most sought-after line of work. Today, it's 52% uh, think entrepreneurship 
is where it's at. So if I'm an aspiring college student, rather than become a doctor and lawyer these days, I think I'd rather start a business? Well, you know, the funny thing, uh, John, is is that uh, although millennials really have a very strong draw to the concept of starting their own business, uh, only about one out of 10 actually want to pull the trigger. So there's some real contrast there between the two. Is that what you find? Really? Yeah. So, so if I ask, if, if I went in my classroom today and I said, hey, how many do you want to start a business Two-thirds would raise their hands. But when a push came to shove, only one in ten would do it. Yeah, they want to be their own boss. Um, they want to pursue something with passion. They want a chance to, for financial gain to make some money. But at, at whenever when push comes to shove, only one in ten will actually give it a shot. And that's a shame. I mean, this class from Georgetown that I was fortunate enough to be involved with, even so, so long ago, produced some really neat young uh, entrepreneurs. A sweet green. Uh, living social. If you ever seen someone spinning a sign on the side of the street, that's arrow advertising that came out of my class. Um, so really neat, very proud of all of the, the students that took the class. But yeah, this is an area that's grown quite a bit over the years. And I'm glad it's, uh, we're starting to see it as minors and majors, and that's generating a new, whole new crowd of entrepreneurs. So, what do you, so if, it's, if the statistic is one out of 10 rather than six out of 10 uh, start, what do you think the impediments are? You know, you've taught an entrepreneurship as of I. What, what is our region lacking that we don't have more of them starting Well, I, I, I think um, they're scared. <laughs> they're scared yeah, of the risk. It's tough. You know? yeah, it's tough. And uh, I think one of the things that's challenging when you watch the news and you see all these young men and women developing these massive successful companies, you don't see the long list that have failed along the way. Mm. And so, yeah, I think that's part of the initiative of entrepreneurship and, and the development of the concept in the area and around the country is that you're going to inspire more young people to, to take the leap. But as our research uh, plays out, wealthy investors in general like the concept more and more. Uh, one of the contrasts that we see, John, is that older uh, entrepreneurs or baby boomers are actually anxious to get out. And so there's going to mm -hmm. be lots of opportunity. Now, part of that's they uh, want to retire. They want to have a little bit more balance in their life. Uh, many of them would like to leave their businesses to their children but 82% of the children have no interest in actually inheriting the business. They'd rather take the cash. So I've read statistics that family-owned businesses are the largest employer in the United States in the private sector. I've read that. And I've also read that the baby boomers, roughly 70% of their businesses are going to turn over the next 10 years. Yeah. And you're telling me that most of those businesses, they don't have kids who want to take them over. Yeah. And on top of that, they don't have real plans. So uh, sort of the tail end of the, the piece that we put out, 58% had never had their businesses appraised, 48% had no formal exit strategy in place at all, and 37% had no place to shield the sale proceeds. And that's where, of course, where wealth management comes in. That's why the industry of wealth management and private wealth, which is where we sit, um, is such a great industry to be in, in my opinion. It's really interesting to me that, because um, I see this phenomenon a lot, and family businesses are often, they're started by an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, spouse, entrepreneur, and brother, sister, and um, the business becomes a family cookie jar. It's the, yeah. it's the only asset. And at some point, the generation ages out, the children don't want to buy it, and then you have an asset, and what do you do with it, right? Yeah. And if they're lucky, they sell it, and they have a pile of money. Yep. It doesn't come with an instruction manual. New set of problems. New set of problems. You know, it's just, it's a funny thing. Getting money doesn't make you happy. You know, people yeah. do, oh, world's smallest violin, first yeah. world problem yeah. kind of reaction. But, you know, the reality is that if somebody is suddenly successful, it's not a happy moment without help, is it? No, it's not. We find that in many of these transactions, first of all, getting a sense of what you want to do ahead of time is helpful. 
uh, getting an idea of what you want to do after this transaction. We'll set some context to things. Um, but we approach it with five questions, pretty straightforward. And I think all of us can ask ourselves these questions either way. We begin with, what do you want to accomplish in your life, right? It's a nice open-ended, easy one to get the thought process started. Who are the people that are most important to you? What concerns do you have? What do you plan to achieve with all of this? And then finally, uh, what do you want your legacy to be? And those are you're fairly open, as I said, but they tend to lend themselves to conversations that direct towards goals and frameworks that you can actually invest in. And that sets the tone for the wealth management stuff. And at the end of the day, what we're really talking about here is people spend their lives trying to build something. And unless they really focus on what they're going to do with it after they exit, they end up undermining all their life's work. And that's really what wealth management is about. Yeah. And and investing is tricky, right? It, it can be emotional. Um, there's highs and lows. Uh, what we think investors should do wherever they are, whether they're doing it themselves or getting help, they should organize it in the way that they think. So we develop strategies for families, entrepreneurs and their families in really three buckets. The first one we call liquidity, which is just cash and really safe stuff. And that's designed to map out a few years of spending. So you've got that set aside and you don't have to worry. The second bigger pile we call longevity. And that's like a pension fund. Uh, that's the money you're setting aside based on your age and what you want to get done. And the last portion we call legacy is really the money that you don't necessarily need that you'll probably leave to your kids or philanthropy or, or whatever it is that you want to do when you're gone down the road. And by segregating those three piles separately and establishing different risk mandates for each, you tend to uh, manage your money the way you think about your money, as opposed to putting it all in one big pot and watching it go up and down. Last thing before I let you go, it seems to me that a missing piece in this is families, the parents should talk with their kids more, maybe either get them more involved in the wealth transition strategy or get them involved in running the business. Seems like there's a bit of a mismatch there. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is that the biggest challenge with communication in families is the uh, idea that it's actually taken place. All families have challenges, but especially when you're dealing with the responsibility that comes with success and wealth, it's really important to sit down and have conversations and communicate. We spend a great deal of time in family governance and helping families walk through that, but you don't necessarily need an expert to do that. It's just a matter of taking the time to sit down and do it. And it's super important. It's a great point. Well, it was great having you on the show today. I think we've now got a few instruction manuals for those of you that are wondering how to manage a transition if you hit it big. Will Finnerty, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Great to be here. And now, non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. Are you really, like, really ready for business growth? Every entrepreneur I've ever met over the last 40 years tells me that they want to grow their business. But are they really ready? Do they understand the additional time and resource demands that growth will put on them, their employees, and even their families? Are they really ready to relinquish the control to sources of capital and other resources that are likely to be needed to fuel that growth? Have they built an adequate foundation for business growth to support future growth strategies? You know, the people, the infrastructure, the capital resources, the channels, etc., to truly scale their businesses the right way. What are some of the more common mistakes? First, growth for growth's sake. You know, have a market validating reason for growth, which is aligned with trends, demands, business models, etc. Don't just grow for the sake of growth. 
Second, growth to fuel the ego of the founder. Need I say more? Bad idea. Third, growth without a game plan. Put a business strategic plan in place. Chances are your original business plan is collecting a lot of dust and is now archaic. Put a plan in place that sets new metrics, new milestones, checks and balances to set the right pace for growth, and some type of system that reviews growth objectives to make sure that you're getting what you want out of your business growth strategy. Remember, we manage what we measure. And then fourth, another common mistake is being pulled into growth versus pushing into a market based on research and demand trends. So many business owners are lured into doing business in places around the country or even around the world for all the wrong reasons. A distant family member, an old college roommate, a relocated employee, or a one-off customer or client who lured them into a marketplace and now they can't escape. Business growth is dynamic, rewarding, exciting. It's hard work and it helps our nation's GDP to flourish, but do it for the right reasons and with the right resources, teams, advisors, and foundation in place to support your plans for the future. That was your non-billable consult with legal expert, Andrew Sherman. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, and our web writer is B. Aldrich. Music provided by two local bands, The Sunbathers and my own band, Two Car Living Room. A special shout out to Marymount University School of Business and Technology. I'm the dean there now, and we are working hard to help our students master business and technology so it doesn't master them. Check us out at marymount.edu. And of course, thanks to Active Navigation, Salesforce Shaw, and the Greater Washington Board of Trade who provide the financial support to make this show possible. If you have a story idea, don't forget to tweet us at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us.